Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I'm excited to welcome Alexander Lukopoulos as my guest. Alex is a partner at both Science Capital Management, an alternative asset management firm, and Science Water, a research-driven investment fund that identifies uncovered, under-researched, or misunderstood opportunities in the water sector that are hence undercapitalized. Dear fellow water professionals, I think you'll like that quote from Alex, water is a very big growth market. Yet, once we've said that, there's another side to that same coin, there's quite a bunch of things to do to reap the opportunity. Hence, Alex shares the three main challenges US water companies face today and how Science Water leverages institutional capital to trigger an impact there. He also covers how water doesn't work in isolation, hence we'll have to look beyond the silo and how public awareness shall generate a change in the approach to water in the future. In our conversation, Alex takes on my favorite question and explains how hypergrowth is possible in the water industry, yet not in a Twitter or Uber fashion. He describes how, without forgetting the residential segment, you shall put it in perspective with the much larger industrial and agriculture pieces of the puzzle, and he shares a very accurate metaphor. The water space very much resembles an orchestra currently producing a cacophonous noise. Of course, we also discuss the distributed benefits of water, water as an investment good, financial and societal benefits not being mutually exclusive, and much more. This conversation is a fascinating deep dive into the US water market's complexity, so if you like it as much as I did, please share it with your friends or colleagues, grab their phones and subscribe them to the podcast. You know you don't have to steal a phone though, you can also send them a message or post a link on social media. Come on, do it for them and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the show. Great. Thank you for having me, Antoine. Well, we have a packed agenda for today, but traditions, I have to open with a postcard and actually a fancy postcard because you're sending us a postcard from New York. So can you tell me something I would ignore about New York? Lots to talk about New York, but the one thing I think that that also is interesting that I didn't know about, um, a lot of people have heard about the Broadway show Hamilton. Um, and how Hamilton originally came from New York. I think what a lot of people don't know is that his nemesis, who eventually ended up killing him, Aaron Burr, was actually one of the first people that helped start the first wastewater treatment plant in the U.S., which happened to be in New York. And so being in a New Yorker uh, for the last you know several decades and being somebody in water, I always think it's fascinating when people equate the first large metropolitan U.S. wastewater treatment plant with Hamilton and Aaron Burr and the long history that that's brought to New York. And the one other point that I'd like to say about that is that it was funded by Hamilton to Aaron Burr to start in New York. And instead of building a world-class wastewater treatment plant, Aaron Burr ended up funding his own projects, which ended up being the Chase Manhattan Bank, 
which now we know is one of the largest global companies in the world, which again, I think also speaks to a lot of the changes and a lot of the large companies that have come out of water. I think a lot of things are known about New York. Not so much is known about the wastewater treatment in New York and Aaron Burr, but hopefully we can try to connect some of those dots today. Well, talking of banking, talking of finance and of the connection to water, that uh, reminds me a bit of your path somehow. And you've been starting in finance, if I get that right. Can you get us through your steps from that very start of your career up to the point where you are today at Sands Water? Sure. Uh, thank you for asking that. So th the path for me in water has not been one straight line. I've done many things in my career over the last 25 years. I think the main thread that I started my career with and now focusing a lot on water is uh, doing something that's impactful to the world and doing it with something that, that I had some knowledge with. So the first part of my career was really dedicated to finance and entrepreneurship, building um, startup technology companies, doing investment banking and finance. Took some paths along the way to, to follow some of my passions, including the Olympics, including the aviation sector. And for the last about 15 years, have been focusing on specifically finance and identifying opportunities in the world of finance where we can build sustainable returns. Uh, and more specifically for the last seven, have been just focusing on water. And water really came as we were looking at identifying where capital needs to go, where there would be massive amounts of impact, and where somebody from, with my background and, and the background of science, which is building businesses, uh, investing institutional capital, would have a big role to play. And we started looking at water because I think everyone can acknowledge that the trends are massive and the need is massive from an impact perspective. I think what enticed us and what led us to, to really focus on water was the opportunity set really needed people to understand the different parts of it and put those pieces together, sort of like a puzzle. What led me to be extremely excited about it is that, you know, I like to put different puzzles together and water represented one of those big puzzles, uh, given my skill set in finance and entrepreneurship and also driven by the need, personal need and, and the company's need to do something that was impactful. So It sort of all came together with the launch of, of Science Water a few years ago and uh, frankly has been extremely exciting and something that I hope to do for the next you know, 20 plus years as, as I ride out the rest of my career. But certainly wasn't a straight path and certainly wasn't a path that I would have anticipated 25 years ago. But looking back on it actually kind of makes sense. Regarding that specific part with uh, Science Water, it's interesting to see that you spinned off from science So you spinned off from a, a finance body. And usually, I mean, I had many guests on that microphone telling me how difficult it was to get the finance world's involvement in water. And you went that same route, but from the other end, I mean, starting in finance and feeling that something was happening in water. Can you tell me a bit more about that specific tipping point where you said, okay, science in general can be doing something in water, but let's be more specific and let's spin off into science water. Yeah, so science, it's a, in a global institutional uh, asset management company. We've invested in many different types of asset classes, uh, including private equity, venture capital, growth equity. For the last about 15 years, we started focusing on real assets, which is taking something that's sort of a hard asset, which is, you know, could be real estate, could be a physical um, infrastructure, things of that nature, and deploying capital to it. So we did that successfully in multiple asset classes. 
But when we were looking to focus on just one asset class, we wanted to find something that was a very big growth market where we could find ourselves really driving the way. And water, as you pointed out, there hasn't been a lot of interest from the finance field into water because it happens to be so confusing and difficult to understand that not a lot of people have spent you know, the years I think you need to really understand and, un- and appreciate the complexities and see through that to be able to put together the puzzle. So I think in terms of the evolution of science, it's logical in the fact that we started kind of broadly doing finance, private equity, and then real assets, and then now specifically just one asset class, which is water, which kind of put all those pieces together. And I think it's extremely exciting to approach water from the finance field because, frankly, I I don't think enough attention has been spent on it. And hopefully it will, uh, because, as you know, the movement of capital is is central to a lot of this, obviously. Well, I think we we will come back to that capital aspect. But right before going into that, when when I was preparing for our discussion, I was reading your website, and your website states that you want to identify the biggest challenges which are faced by the U.S. water and wastewater industry. And I was wondering, out of the many challenges out there, what is the biggest challenge you identified? Great question. I I think I'll start with water. I like to say is literally everywhere, but nowhere, right? Because it is so confusing. We can sit here and talk about water and you've talked about it on your program and many, you know, it's part of text, you know, textiles. It's part of industry. It's part of health. It's part of everything. So the main problem was we wanted to just begin and try to solve one of the main big problems, right? Because I think that's one of the main issues with water is that because it is so complicated, it kind of gets lost out there in terms of people trying to make sense of it. So I think the key is is focus. And that took us a long time to, to even begin to understand that. And then we said, okay, let's just start with one of, or a couple of the main problems of water. And as we sat here in New York, and as we sat here you know, in the United States, we started pinpointing a few of the large problems, right? Now, as you pointed out, there are many problems. If I was sitting in Africa, if I was sitting in France, if I was sitting in wherever, the problems are different than they are in New York as they are in the United States. So we said, let's just focus on the US and let's focus on what we see as some of the main problems and then work our way down in terms of actually trying to solve them. Because otherwise, literally your head will go spinning around and around thinking of all the problems with water because Frankly, I don't know any problem that doesn't involve water. You know, a bit of an exaggeration, but but also kind of true. So we said, let's just be specific and focus. And the first issue we found was there are just way too many systems of water and wastewater utilities in the United States, right? Every time I still say the fact that there's 60, 70,000 systems in the U.S., people even in the industry don't believe me, right? Because as you know, in France, what there's there's a couple of dozen, right? So in the U.S., I think that's problem number one that we set out to solve. Problem number two is recycle reuse, right? Again, I think people also don't realize in the U.S. because it is so such a big market that, you know, we recycle and reuse such a small percentage of our water, yet every headline every three days in August and September and October is of the lack of water on the West Coast of the United States, right? So we said problem number two. Problem number three was, you know, just a deep infrastructure problem is, the fact that the infrastructure in the U.S. is really old. Europe's is even older, but has tackled it in a very more, you know, different way because they've had to face the same issues the United States faced, you know, earlier. But people, I think, oftentimes 
headline that number and see the pipes breaking and then they forget about it. But I think what's largely been ignored is, is how bad that is and not just how bad, you know, the airport is, you know, everyone lands in LaGuardia, lands in JFK, it's awful or the bridges are bad. It's, it's the real infrastructure, which is the part that you can't see, that sometimes you can't even smell, which, which is largely related to the underground systems and the water systems that people just don't, don't see. So again, to summarize, we started with specific big problems in our area of expertise right now, which is the United States, and started working our way down. But again, you know, I think the list can go on and on and on, and hopefully we'll solve a lot more than three problems, you know, start to solve a lot more than just those three problems over the next 20 years. But I think the key is to start somewhere and to start something that's, that's actionable. The first problem you list here is that too many players, I mean, too many different players. And I remember that number of this 50,000 something, which was given on that microphone by Elongo Tevar. And he was mentioning that he found that number in a book from Seth Siegel. And I think you're working with Seth Siegel within Sense Water. So I think there's kind of a, a logical link here between all those different parts. But once we've said that there are 50,000 utilities and it's probably far too much, and I've heard that from people telling me there are far too, too many utilities in, in France as well, in Germany, the only exception probably being the UK with their 12 players. But how much of a problem is it that there are too many? Is that the real problem? Or is it just a symptom of the problem? No, that's, I mean, in the US, the statistics that you keep hearing about, you have a, about 50,000 water utilities and then about 20 plus thousand wastewater utilities. That's the number. I, I frankly think it's probably even higher. And what makes the US so unique is the way that the infrastructure grew you know, 60, 70 years ago, right? It's a vast land. It's very much not as centralized as Europe, right? Didn't develop in a centralized, smaller geographical footprint area with a much more pro-private sector growth, right? The real estate developers would just go to a new city 34, 50, 60 years ago and just grow. And they would grow and it would be like weeds, right? So the byproduct of that 60, 70 years later is that you have big metro areas, right? But then you have suburbs or areas that have kind of grown in all these decentralized private wastewater and water systems. And so the problem is very real. And the reality is that many of those systems are in the middle part of the United States, which, you know, doesn't get the amount of airtime and the amount of you know, recognition that somebody does from New York, from San Francisco. And it also doesn't have the capital or the political federal capital which is where a lot of that comes from in the United States, to be able to, to fix those systems. The second problem is that a lot of these systems are actually completely private. You know, there's thousands of, of these smaller systems that are actually completely private, which is, I think, very different from the rest, you know, the rest of the world in Europe, because in Europe, there may be a lot of systems, but I don't think they're private. In the U.S., you have these 70,000 plus or minus systems, and people talk about one other statistics that I'm sure you've heard about that's 85% of the population is serviced by municipally run systems. But on the flip side, it's not 85% of the 70,000 systems are not public. It's actually the inverse. Most of the systems are actually small and private, which is leads to even more confusion, uh, even more issues, and an area that we identified that needs to consolidate because Unless that's kind of like the basis, the baseline of what you need for a good water, you know, and a wastewater system is, is good utilities. 
And if they happen to be private, we felt that as private investors, we could make the biggest difference on that pretty quickly. So you're saying that they are very distributed on a curve, which means that there are many, many, many small ones that are private. And you're saying that you as Science Water, you're not necessarily acting on the very large one, which are public, but you, you, you have something to do on that lower end of the, of the market. But can you define that something? What would you actually do to support those smaller size and to maybe to consolidate them and just to buzz, to, to send some buzzword and you, uh, to just to see if that's where you, you're heading? Yeah, so th that's one of our platforms is that, which is consolidating these small private systems that need upgrading. So we go and we have a company called Central States Water Resources, which is probably one of the fastest growing privately owned water utilities that operates in, in eight states now. And it goes and, and buys these smaller systems that are, some of them are very much out of compliance, fixes them, re-rates them, and, and gives people, you know, better, cleaner water. And these are systems that would largely either continue to be out of compliance, the government can't really handle, handle them, And we're doing it in a very efficient, more centralized manner. And so that obviously, as you can imagine, you know, you can build upon that. But we view that and that's that's been our first investment from from a couple of years ago to really understand, you know, the backdrop of U.S. water. Because I think a lot of people and you, you've talked about this and you've had, you know, guests from the super large water companies. But we approached it from the exact opposite side, which is from the grassroots side as opposed to let's approach problems with, you know, billion dollar, you know, names and, and billion dollar solutions, right? We think that a lot of the, you know, a lot of it from water has to come from the grassroots and work its way up um, because that's fundamentally how we viewed our ability to create value for everybody. And we viewed that as, as the biggest, you know, kind of hole, if you will, in, in the market. So would it be right for me to summarize that into saying that you, you're transferring from decentralized to distributed? So that was organically grown a bit everywhere. And you're saying, okay, the assets are there. Let's keep the asset where they are, but let's act on them with a, a more centralized matter. So having this two path, I mean, sometimes people link that between the decentralized nature of the asset themselves and, and then having a more digital approach to them saying you can be running DAOs from remote, but in a central manner, which gives you this scale effect. Is that a right translation now in my own words of what you're explaining? Yes. So I, I would say the, the fact of the matter is it's, it's very decentralized market, right? Taking the utilities as an example, but we can talk about treatment. We can talk about other aspects of it. So you need to take that decentralized and create you know, something that's scalable and distributed, if you will, right? Whether you call that distributed in terms of operations, because you're distributing it over a larger piece, if you're talking about it in terms of technology, if you're talking about it in terms of evolution, in, in terms of using products and spreading them over a larger area, I think that that's absolutely right. And that's kind of phase two, and that's even more value accretive, right? Part is, but I, I don't think certainly in the US, you can't ignore the decentralized aspect of it, because it's always going to be there. You just need to figure out the right way of creating more of a, what you used, a distributed type of, of approach. Or what I'm talking about is scalable, right? You need to get to some sort of scale, which becomes even more efficient for everybody. And in what we're trying to do, we're trying to do that 
in certain sectors using private capital, private innovation, private technology, and continue to create more value and efficiencies. So when you mentioned the um, private utility you're building, which is now active in, in eight states, if I, if I recall right, how do you act as Science Water there? Is it 100% you that own that company? Are you an investor in that company? Are you seeding that company? Are you a startup study coming with the idea of the company and someone else builds it? What is your path there? So we are, we're a private equity investor, right? We manage institutional capital for many investors worldwide. Uh, so we take that money and invest it. And that was our first company, Central States Water Resources, where, where we own the company and we drive the strategy and we work with them to, to help scale it. And that business started with a couple of utilities. Now it's got, you know, a couple hundred utilities, hopefully a lot more, but it's, it's really, we're, we're private equity investors. So the way that, that that's viewed is we're, we're controlling and building a business. Very clear. So that covers all the, the first problem you identified is too many utilities. So if we go to the second one, which was the lack of water, where do you see the most pressing issues with the, the lack of water and how can you act on those? So yeah, that, that's a bit broader, right? Because you're talking about treatment. So there I would put it into two categories. One is the mismatch between supply demand or put it simply the need for the U.S. to recycle more water, right? So what does that mean? That means treating it better. Because as we've seen, you know, in other parts of the world, you know, you can reuse so much more of the water than in the U.S. So we approach that with identifying parts of treatment that exhibited an ability to do that really well, an ability to focus in areas where the big, there's the biggest need for that and to solve it using construction and technology. So there we invested uh, in a business called Integrated Water Services, which essentially constru engineers constructs and builds and manufactures MBRs, which as you know, create um, the highest quality, one of the highest quality effluent waters and can increase uh, recycle reuse. So we viewed that as our, as our first foray into helping spur more recycle reuse. And the second point is we didn't do that in terms of let's increase recycle reuse for the big metro areas. We decided to, and what the, this company focuses on is the more decentralized part of the market, which is less than 250,000 gallons a day. So again, it started with a big theme, uh, recycle reuse. It went into a specific part of that theme, which in our case, in this specific case is, is the growth of MBRs in decentralized treatment in a specific region in the U.S. Because, again, I think the, the other point that people don't do as much in water is I hate to generalize, right? Because what I just talked to you about the utilities, it does not apply to the U.K., as you said, right? It does not apply to France. It applies to the U.S. And within the U.S., it applies to certain states within the U.S. So our approach was very similar in what I just described with treatment. It applies If I wanted to build MBRs in a Long Island city right here down the street, that doesn't make any sense. But when you're talking about areas that have a lack of, of supply, that need more recycle reuse, that need that higher effluent quality water, then yeah, sure, decentralized MBRs would work. So again, it's not a one, one size fits all. You've got to be and pinpoint your specific parts of the market you're going after in water. And again, we approach this very much from a grassroots perspective as opposed to 
yeah, I want to solve all the recycle reuse. So I'm going to, you know, increase the recycle in Manhattan from 12.5% to 15%. We'll leave that problem for others. I've seen you in, in interviews saying that in, in the US, there's 10% of the water which is recycled. Do I recall that right? It's somewhere in that low teens. So I've been discussing on that microphone, for instance, with Rabbit Levy about how Israel recycles its water. And of course, in Israel, you're such in a level of water scarcity that you're reusing close to 90%. And on the other end or the lower end of the scope, I'm sitting in French right now. And I think the number in France is 0.6%, which is recycled just because it's hard to build the equilibrium and, and the, uh, the economic rational for reusing if you have sufficient water available. Where I'm trying to head here is on the principle, I mean, reusing, I mean, the podcast is called Don't Waste Water, so it's very close to my heart, of course. But how do you build the economic rational to reuse? How do you convince people that beyond the increased cost of treatment, there is a balance between benefits and costs? I see how it applies in Florida or in California or in Texas, And it's probably more difficult to build in Illinois or uh, the state of Washington, just from a very, very foreign perspective here. No, that, uh, that, that's a great question. And so the way we, we approach it is we're going after, like you pointed out, you know, places like California, places like Texas that exhibit strong macro trends where they need to recycle their water even more because of lack of supply or where the regulations are changing, where you, whether you recycle or not, you need to produce higher quality effluent, right? So that's the trigger for us today. But eventually, I think as people are getting more conscious of it, which I think they are, right? Because there's a lot of water groups out there that are saying, we need to take that responsibility ourselves. I think people more and more are recognizing it, but until they, it becomes much more widespread and people realize, you know, that water needs to be recycled. We need to take care of it better. Whether you have abundance of it or not, there is a cost that keeps going up. I think until that happens, we're focusing on the areas that absolutely need it, where it, where it's necessary and where the need is there, right? And so we're not relying on, you know, everyone's mind shift to change over the next two years. We're relying on baseload fundamentals and in certain cases, local regulations that are spurring it with the fact that there is this massive kind of global let's call it tsunami that's saying, Hey, I'm going to wake up and, and be, be more conscious of this. Right. You have young kids. I have young kids. I mean, you know, they, they get it right. The, nobody was telling me at the age of five, stop doing this, do this, be more friendly to this. I mean, but now you see that. And so um, I think that's going to happen and that's going to be an even bigger tailwind to the whole industry, but we're not, building our investment thesis on that changing dramatically, which is why we're focusing on certain specific areas where the macro trends are there even now. Talking of investment thesis, I mean, it's probably the question I've asked the most on that microphone, which is, is hypergrowth possible in the water industry? I'll give it a twist here because you're addressing a part of that market, which is clearly a growth pass, which is reuse, I think, to recall another statistic that uh, David Owen was training at his booth in, in his Global Water Funding book, it's that 9% of the world's water shall be covered with reuse by 2050. And we are very far from the number right now, which means four times more water shall come from reuse than from desalination, which is much higher today. So you're on a, on a trend, but a trend which is capital intensive. 
the barrier to entry is quite high. If you're building MBRs, I mean, you have to really invest quite a lot at the entry. So that is somehow the perfect path for hypergrowth. Here, you could just win the market by investing a lot upfront. Is that your investment thesis or what is your take here? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, I, and I've heard you ask that question many times. And, and believe me, I think about it. So the answer is, yes, I do think hypergrowth is possible, right? But let, let's define that, right? So hypergrowth is, you know, 20 to 50% growth. I think oftentimes people think hypergrowth is an Uber, a Twitter, you know, a Facebook and just massive, you know, unicorns. That's not going to happen in water. Water is such a local market, but to have growth that is well above market, 20 to 50%, absolutely, if you find the right sector and you do it, whether it's on the infrastructure side, like, you know, the two businesses that I pointed out, I would say, you know, our utility business is growing exponentially, right? Which would be defined as hyper growth in the water market, the MBR business and the demand and the need and the construction um, in certain parts of the market are undergoing that 20 to 50% if not more growth. But I think, and I want to define this because I I think about this quite often, there isn't going to be one technology that is going to be used across the board in every water utility in the United States that is going to cause, you know, multi-billion dollar water technologies, right? That's not, in my view, going to happen. But if you start putting the right pieces together, you can see pockets of water that are exhibiting that, that strong growth rate. And I'm hopeful that you'll begin to see those case studies in the next few years. And those case studies will fuel more business cases to keep at it. Because from where I sit, there is no lack of opportunity to solve all these problems. And when there are big problems to solve with smart innovation, capital, and and the right framing, you will have that. And, And hopefully we'll be part of that to some extent. But there will hopefully be a lot more people that do that and more case studies because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I'm generally, you know, incredibly optimistic about it, but at the same time, I'm not delusional to think that you're going to have a a billion dollar, you know, technology company coming out in the next two years in the water space that's going to be applied universally with that type. But I don't think that's how you would define hypergrowth. And that's certainly not how I would define hypergrowth. So, so far, we've covered two of your three main risks and the two which, to me, make quite obvious sense now that we explain it. So the first one was these utilities. And there, if you're an investor, you can trigger a consolidation of the market. So that makes absolutely sense to me. The second was this increased reuse. And then, of course, if you're an investor and you can really push forward in that MBR sphere or similarish uh, technologies, that's clearly the go-to for reuse. So that, again, makes a lot of sense. The third one you mentioned was all the infrastructure. And that, to me, gets a bit more tricky because I fully agree with you. I mean, when I prepared that, that, that interview, I was recalling again the numbers which you find on the market. You find the EPA studies, which show you that the number of, uh, of drinking water pipes in, in the US, which were classified as very poor in the 80s, compared to today, that number was multiplied by 10. And if you look at the one which were excellent on the same timeline, they were divided by two. So just Clearly, there is an infrastructure problem in the U.S. So I heard you in interviews talking about that, and I I read a lot of stuff which support that. So absolutely fine with me. The point where I have a disconnect is what can you as science water do on that infrastructure level to move the needle? 
Yeah, so the, the way we look at the infrastructure piece is uh, above ground, below ground, right? And again, I think you can't generalize. One investment that we've made in infrastructure is we, we bought a business that makes pre-stressed concrete tanks, which have been you know best for storing water, the way they're built, the efficiency. And that is building upon an existing business that is trying to be more innovative, trying to come up with more service type of solutions that make it more efficient later on. So the cost of the infrastructure and the cost of the infrastructure upgrade ends up becoming less later on, right? So that's that's one example of how we attack that because it's very unique to that particular part of, of infrastructure. The second piece that I've spent a lot of time in, in talking about is, is pipe rehab, right? We all know there's a million and a half million miles of pipe in the U.S. They're all old. Some of them are from 200 years ago. In Europe, you have the same same issue. So there are certain amounts of technologies that can help rehab that. So we've been looking at that space for a long time. But the way we approach infrastructure is identifying what parts of that you can put an upgrade in a more efficient way, utilizing the technologies of today, right? So I'm not saying you know, we're going to invest in, in a new type of CIPP technology or a new type of lining. It's really that middle part, which is taking that technology and commercializing it in a scalable infrastructure way to be able to benefit both the end consumer, the business, and the technologist. I think it's, it's combining that value chain, if you will, that I think is what's going to cause infrastructure in water to improve. And again, I don't think it's going to come from the super large billion dollar businesses. I think, and this is just the US again, it's going to come from the grassroots. It's going to come from helping, you know, pre-stressed concrete tank is not a multi-billion dollar market, but it's a fairly big market, right? It's, it's a critical part of the market. You know, pipe rehab, you can spend time, you know, refurbishing a eight foot pipe, or you could start with the laterals, which is a smaller, more fragmented piece that's left for the plumber. So we're always trying to figure out how to do that from a grassroots perspective, because not every infrastructure project, not everything so-called infrastructure is a bridge, a multi-billion dollar project. And I think that's also something that's even more relevant in water is that infrastructure could be small uh, and can start small and can start grassroots. It doesn't have to be uh, something massive and or something that the government controls and runs. But to, to that specific thing of infrastructure and aging infrastructure, if I now take a very, I try f from my Euro European premises to take a very North American view on that question. In Mexico, there is more money spent in bottled water than in utility water. And the tipping point for the US is very close. So it's expected to happen in the next years that there will be more money spent in bottled drinking water than in utility water. And if you take states like California, 80% of people simply don't drink tap water. So where I'm trying to go here is, does it really matter to improve that? I'm really playing the devil advocate here, but does it really matter to improve that infrastructure if anyways, the customers are moving, moving away from tap water? Yeah, no, great question. Well, I think we always have to strive for... Um a basic, you know, infrastructure. I think, yes, certainly people can drink, you know, more bottled water. But I, I, again, I look at the water industry more than just, you know, the residential piece, right? You've got the industrial, you've got the commercial, you've got um, the agricultural piece, right? All of that 
needs infrastructure and all of that needs even more upgraded infrastructure. And all we're advocating with that is to approach it from a grassroots perspective and layer on, you know, more innovation, right? That innovation can be, oh, I have a new type of lining technology that will make it faster, cheaper, or that could be a business model innovation. I'm going to help finance this using a different structure that hasn't been used before for a municipality, right? Or that can be an innovation in terms of, you know, you use the example, you know, censoring, right? For a utility so that I don't have to send my guy on a truck to go test the water every three days, or I can turn the valve remotely. So it's putting the pieces together from a grassroots perspective to be able to do that. And I think now there is no better time to do that. And again, I think you got, you got to put your lens on in terms of, you know, water is, is just such a broad, you know, piece to it that it's oftentimes agriculture, it's industrial. And, you know, we try to focus on solutions for specific types of end customers, which I think there's no lack of, right? If the conviction isn't so strong in terms of bottled water, you know, then we won't focus on that piece of it for that particular area. We'll, we'll go after other infrastructure. But the reality is, the, I mean, the infrastructure is just, you know, anybody who has a home knows you need to maintain your home to do it. And in the U.S., the infrastructure is abysmal, right, at best and, and getting worse. And the reality is the federal government is not going to drop money from the sky. And if they do, it's probably going to go to the big cities. Everything else will probably not get too much. And uh, it definitely won't be enough. So we want to just be part of that solution to help do it so people can get you know, cleaner water, agriculture, cleaner water, industrial can remove some of the contaminants and so And the list goes on and on and on. But that's the basic high-level macro thinking. You mentioned your investment thesis and you mentioned at the very beginning of that interview, you mentioned impact investing. And now you just said that the, the federal government, there's just so much that they can finance. But actually, besides financing, they could be regulating. Let me just give you a short extract from a previous discussion I had on that microphone, and I'll take my question from there. Sustainable investors can do a lot to, to move in a certain direction, but they cannot solve problems on their own. They, they need regulation. The thing is, as an investor, you act within the system of capitalism. Right? You are, you know, by definition, a capitalist, right? You're sort of providing capital, you're taking stakes. You can achieve a lot of incremental changes as an investor and you can accelerate them and, and they are valuable. There are some issues that require political change. So that was an extract from Julian Kölbel and Florian Hebb, who are researchers in the field of impact investing. And they were trying to set the middle point between what impact investing actually can trigger and what regulation shall bring to support there. Do you share their vision there? Or what would be your point here? What do you need to trigger in terms of regulations to increase your strength there? Yeah, I, I tell you, and I think this is one of the, the fascinating things about water is that you cannot work in isolation, right? You need to work with all the different constituents, right? Policy, government, technology, engineering, finance, operations, right? Marketing, set, you know, you got to be able to navigate all of that. And so when I talk about impact, I'm in no, you know, under no view that it could just be with money from science water, right? You need to do that in concert 
with the federal government, whether it's regulations, whether it's uh, it's a regulated industry, right? Water, wait, water, wastewater, right? So, <laughs> you, you, you know, you need to work with them hand by hand. You need that with the technologists. You need that with the engineers, right? You need that with, you know, the operators. So it's it's really much putting all those pieces together, right? I said it, it's a puzzle, right? You need a puzzle and you need structures to put that. You, you need to know what you want to build, right? So you need to see the framework. You have the pieces. You need to see the framework. And then you need somebody to actually physically put those different puzzle pieces together. So all we're advocating is to work with the other you know, stakeholders to do that. And you've got to do that all along the way, right? It can't be just I'm developing this in some sort of, you know, lab in my dorm room, right? And it's going to be a trillion dollar business, which can happen in many parts of technology. We've seen that we've, you know, and I think that in many parts of finance and many parts of technology operations, water, and that's what makes it unique is you need to do that in concert with everybody else, which in some cases may take a little bit longer, um, to find that, but in reality, there is no other way of doing that. So um, we spent a lot of time with regulators. We spent a lot of time with policy, academia, operations, and and putting that together in concert. Because um, you know, I heard a great analogy. I was on a forum the other day, which is people in the water space. You know, it's an orchestra, right? Which is right now creating cacophonous noise, and it's it's a matter of who's going to conduct it to make good music and. My point to that was, yes, you need conductors to make good music. You need many conductors because it's not one orchestra, one type of music um, and one solution. You need multiple conductors. And we want to be part of that conducting. And we want to be part of, of, you know, making some of that good music because no matter what, the conductor needs an orchestra. That leaves me to my last question, that deep dive, which is you are one of the players in that orchestra because you're investing in that in that sphere and you're investing and guiding your investments towards certain outcomes but the results of all of that won't be only financial i mean not directly financial it, i mean the, the water sector is distributed but the outcome of the water sector are distributed as well if you're treating better your water then probably your environment is going to be better than on the long run you need to invest less in solving the environmental crisis and If the river is a bit more beautiful in the center of the city, then people will be more happy. And then you will have more leisure around the river, more, more business built around the river. I mean, what, I, what I'm trying to say here is that it's hard to put a direct financial equation to say I invest so much and the output of so many billions, which is estimated by several studies, which are very serious about that, it's not going to fall in one in one's pocket and to say, hey, I can reap all the benefits because I invested. No, the, the benefits are going to be for the society globally. And I find that fascinating from an external point of view. But if I was an investment company, it may be hard to explain to my investors that all the money I put in serves generally the well-being of the society, but not directly my financial interests. So as investment good, how different is water from any other type of investment? Yeah, no, great question. I think the reality is there's so much inefficiency. And if one is able to identify the value creation, you can get value creation, economic, societal benefits that go hand in hand, right? Um, this isn't a zero-sum game here, right? Which is, I think that's part of the water sector is that you can have the types of returns that our investors ask us to get 
because of the value creation we are producing and the impact um, and sustainability to it. I don't think they're mutually exclusive by any stretch of the imagination. And anyone that would believe that is probably looking at a very small part of, of the water you know, market, which I think is changing and growing. And, and I'm incredibly encouraged by the fact that you can actually do both. And that what personally you know, excites me is to do that and to do it well and to do it at scale. But I definitely don't think you know, making money and water and doing good are at all mutually exclusive if you're focused in the right areas and creating enough value for everybody to win. I honestly don't think there's any lack of opportunity for anybody who can see it and can see it from a grassroots basis. So does that mean that people invest into water deliberately? Like they say, they want to be in water and they will have financial benefits, but as it's not mutually exclusive, and you're fully right by saying that, there will be a a win-win or is it like really some it's part of their portfolio and one part of their portfolio is water and they simply don't care. Yeah, I think that's changing. Uh, I mean, if I would love to say that, yeah, people call us up every day and say, I, you know, I get it about water and I want to invest in it. You know, we're still a small asset manager in the grand scheme of things. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that will change as they see more success and as they see what we've done, you know, will spur others to do similar things. Um, so I'm hopeful that that will happen. But right now it's, it's still very much top line driven and, you know, uh, still a part of it. But I think in a few years, I'm hopeful that just like people, you know, say, I just want, you know, carbon, I just want, you know, electric utility, you know, I, I just wind or solar or what have you, um, because of the impact, people will say the same thing about water. But I don't think there's enough product, uh, financial product out there right now to be able to do that. But I think soon that will be the case. Successful investment products out there. It's very interesting that you say that because by coincidence, I, I was reading a report by, for, from Pollination today, which was saying that we, we shall, the water industry, get inspired by how the climate activists have been playing the, the masses education towards one single goal, which was reduced to carbon emissions. And we don't have that single goal in the water industry, which makes it a bit more difficult to have a metric to measure and to get all the people that would actively ask to I want to invest in water as people would be actively divesting from oil and fossil fuels. So there's probably one of the battles to come when it comes to the water industry. And just one, one closing question for you here. Do you see a, a major trend which is booming in terms of water investing or is it something which is slowly growing as would any kind of uh, sustainable investment? Great question. Um, you know, I've been in the water space for you know a little bit over seven years right now. So I definitely think there's a lot more interest, right? There's a lot more investor interest than I've seen before. And there's certainly a lot more understanding from a consumer basis about the importance of this. And I certainly think there's there's no lack of opportunity or product, right? Or, or solutions to solve, right? So um, I do think that we're in some sort of inflection point, but I would say I think it's still early. Uh, we got a long way to go because the sector is is so vast and so broad and so complicated. But I, I do see a lot more entrance. I do see uh, a lot more excitement. And I'm hopeful that it will be driven by a lot more action and success than um, high-level noise, right? Because the one thing I don't want to happen is, you know, you have some high-profile transactions or people in the industry and 
it just doesn't go right, in which case that hampers the industry. So I'm cautious um, that we can produce the right types of case studies and results that will cause a lot more change in the future because all the macro trends are there, right? I mean, it's, it's silly to think otherwise, right? Everyone, you know, water is literally everywhere, but nowhere, but people are beginning to pay attention. Uh, but you need to do it in the right understanding way, researched way. And, um, you know, like I tell my kids, I mean, if, if I just throw a bunch of puzzle pieces out there and you don't know what you're building, will you ever finish? The answer is no, you will never finish. So I'm hopeful that the right people will help put the puzzle pieces together um, in the right way over the next decades. I was saying that was the last question, but I cannot just close on that one because that means people need to have a vision. Someone needs to have the vision for it to happen. Who, if there is one person or which body, shall be the one bringing that vision? Yeah, no, I, again, I, I don't think it's because water is so important uh, where you need multiple constituents and where it is so local, there isn't one person. It's just some, a group of people that work together. And, you know, I, I've worked in many sectors, as I pointed out in the beginning. The thing that fascinates me about water is that people care and the caringness about the environment and each other right now is at its all-time high. And that's the only way, you know, people will work together. I think people really work together in the water space. Um, it's not like working in certain parts of Wall Street or hedge funds or certain in other industries where, you know, the opportunity set keeps shrinking or gets too competitive because there's too many people. Water people like to work together. They have a common vision. They all care about the world. Uh, and that unifies everybody. And, you know, you've told a bunch of stories on your podcast about that. And I think that's the unifying trend of people in water. And I, so I don't think it's one person. I think it's it's a lot of these people working together for a long period of time. And some people will, will be leaders, some people will be followers, but the reality is, you know, you have a whole shifting uh, mindset of people and, and hopefully that will, that will drive change. And, you know, you're central to that with your podcast and getting the word out there and, and telling those stories. That's what makes it unique is the stories. And so it won't be one individual. That makes a perfect conclusion for that deep dive. While I'm blushing, I, <laughs> I propose you to switch to the rapid-fire questions. It's time for the rapid-fire questions. In that last section, I'll try to keep the questions short, and then it's up to you. I'm not cutting the microphone, but you can have short answers or dive a bit deeper. My first question is going to be, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? I think every day, you know, trying to solve big water problems is just super exciting, right? Any of the projects for any, you know, of the businesses that I just laid out is super exciting, right? Whether it's, you know, identifying more water utilities to acquire new states that will give people good, clean water at a reasonable price. That's exciting. Identifying how much we're going to help in increasing the, the recycle, reuse, and effluent quality in, in parts of, of the United States that are in a drought or are in a contaminated area. That's exciting to me. So I would say just overall, you know, helping solve issues, big issues in water are very exciting. What's your favorite part of your current job? I think working with uh, so many different interesting people from various backgrounds, right? Like I mentioned earlier, I think the water sector has one common theme, which is everybody really cares and everybody really wants to work together. And I think it's interesting to, to, to talk to so many different people that care, but also come from various different backgrounds and contribute different things. It's, 
you know, one thing to talk to an engineer about an anaerobic digester or a technologist about, you know, uh, solving biogas issues, uh, talking to an academic or talking to a policymaker, federal government or a mayor or a financier or an operator of a construction company. I think it's it's the different types of, of personalities, but fundamentally all people that care and want to want to do good. What is the trend to watch out for in the water industry? Uh, I mean, certainly a trend. You know, people talk about it. You've had people on, on your show digital. I think you can't ignore that. For far too long, the technology and the innovation hasn't been applied properly. I think a lot of that innovation on the technological side is there. I think the innovation has to come with how do you, how do you scale it? How do you commercialize it? But uh, certainly that's that's coming down, whether you're talking about infrastructure, utilities, or treatment, right? All of the above of the macro trends that I talked about. The digital aspect um, is, is big. What is this thing you care about the most when you're starting on a new project? And what is the one you care the least? Uh, that I care the most about is that it's a, uh, it fits within our thesis in our, in our plan. And it generates the, the types of returns that we have told our investors. That's the beginning of it. Followed by, you know, is this having the right type of impact? Is this the right type of project that we want to have? And is this something that, that we can add value in? It's, it's that logical step. The things that I care the least about, how difficult it is. You know, I, I like difficult things. Uh, spent my career trying to solve difficult puzzles. Um, if this was easy, I think you would see a lot more dedicated U.S. water infrastructure funds. So um, I think the part that I care the least about is, is how much time and effort it's going to take to actually get results. I have given your background, expertise, and fields where you are, you're working. I have to, to add an additional question. I don't know how much of a rapid-fire question it is and how much of a difficult question it is, so you'll tell me. But what do you think of Water Futures and the fact that Water Futures are traded on Wall Street? Great question. You know, I, I, I get that question a lot. And to be honest, I, I focus on other parts of the water market. I, I mentioned this, you know, we're grassroots infrastructure investors. That's a very different ballgame, um, one that's more financial engineering driven and much more regulatory driven. So um, we've shied away from that completely. So I don't really have an opinion other than to say it's not something we focus on. Good answer to a, a curveball question. <laughs> Do you have sources to recommend to keep up with the water treatment, water sector news? Um, I mean, sources, you know, the, the, I think the greatest sources, uh, you know, outside of, of publications and listening to podcasts and like yours and, you know, global water intelligence, I think we get our sources from primary research grassroots, right? Talking to the CEOs every day, you know, getting in the pickup truck and driving around Louisiana and seeing people and seeing the treatment plants, you know, attending trade shows or, or just talking to people in the water sector. I think it's, uh, for us, that's important, but, More and more, you're seeing more, you know, sources of, of water information that are useful. Um, but I, I think, you know, listening to podcasts and listening to one-on-one -on -one conversations about, you know, the, the, the stories and the people of water, I think it's fascinating. You know, I, I mentioned I worked at the Olympics. I mean, the Olympics is, is about stories, right? It's not so much the nanosecond of a difference, but the story of the individuals. And, and so for me, water... Uh, is the story of those individuals and learning from those individuals. While talking of individuals to, to learn from, would you have someone to recommend me to have on that very microphone? Uh, you know, a lot of, I mean, I, I think we, we interact with a lot of interesting stories. You know, 
certainly Seth Siegel. He's one of our, you know, members on our, uh, on our advisory board. I think he wrote, you know, the, the most mainstream book that it helped explain water. We make everybody read it the day they arrive at science. I think it's a great book. He, you know, he wrote it. That was the follow-up book to his original book about um, water in Israel. He's very well informed, very eloquent. He, he actually also told me the story about Hamilton. Uh, it came from him. Uh, he can probably explain it in much better detail than I can. Professor Lal, you mentioned him. You know, he's probably the pre, one of the preeminent academic policy thinkers in water. Uh, somebody I have tremendous respect for, Professor Lal at, at Columbia at the Water Center. And, you know, any of any of the people, you know, that I interact with on a daily basis, any of our CEOs for our water businesses, I think would be great. But, you know, there is no lack of stories around water. And you know that. And, and you know, I think it's great that you're bringing some of them to life because, you know, people need to get more and more educated on it. Um, it's not, like I said, you know, you, you're not going to put the puzzle pieces together just by thinking you're building Legos. This isn't Legos. This isn't Playmobil. This is, this is you know, real, real puzzle. Well, I couldn't agree more. So I think that's the perfect closing. So thanks a lot, Alex. Thanks for your time. Great recommendations. I think I'll swiftly follow on because Seth Siegel was on my watch list for a while. You should, absolutely. He's a fantastic speaker. And, and Professor Lal, too, is, is great. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.